The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right, well, if you want to uh, turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8, this is our final week in our Esther series. We've been uh, walking through the book of Esther for the last seven or eight weeks or so, um, seven weeks, and uh, we're, coming, we're covering all of chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. We're, we're, we're doing a bit of a broad brushstroke look at these last few chapters. There's quite a, quite a bit to get through, and um, so we're just kind of going to cover it quite briefly. Um, I hope you've been blessed by this series. I, uh, g- going through Esther myself, uh, I've been, I feel like my confidence in God has been buoyed by this story. Just, it's just such a remarkable story. Um, firstly, I've just been absolutely blown away with how relevant it is. Like it's, it's uh, happened thousands of years ago in uh, the kingdom of Persia, in the capital city of Susa, like, we couldn't be further separated from what was going on there, and yet it's had such incredible things to say to us about our current moment in time. Um, secondly, it's just meant a lot to me how God uses questionable people to fulfill his plans. So, so Esther and Mordecai, they finish up the story as heroes, but I don't think that's how they started the this, this, this story. They, they were like, it's hard to know what their motives were. And just the fact that God uses people like that gives hope for people like me. Thirdly, um, just remembering God's comprehensive sovereignty over all things. From very little things like the roll of the dice to, to very large things like the entire kingdom of Persia, God has his way. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Father, we know that your word is profitable for us, for uh, reproof and teaching and for exhortation. And so, Jesus, would you open up your word to us this morning? May may we see you here this morning? Holy Spirit, would you pry open our eyes, pry open our ears to hear your voice, to see your goodness, Lord? Lord. And Father, as we consider this story and as we consider our lives, Father, would you make that connection, draw that link in, and show us what today looks like, different, Lord, as a result of your word, what this week looks like, different as a result of your word in our hearts, Father. So we ask, Father, for that to to be the case, Father. Amen. Every now and then, uh, we're given the opportunity to... Stop and ask the question, what's this all about? I don't know about you, but every now and then, that question comes to me with fresh force. Like it, I, something happens, and it's an all of a sudden moment of going, well, what, what is life all about? What's the meaning of all of this? Sometimes it, that comes as significant life events, like the birth of a child or the death of a loved one. Um, I had one of these moments this week on Tuesday. I'm not sure if you were keeping an eye on this or watching the news with this, but on Tuesday evening around 6 p.m. Uh, our time, the world population clicked over to 8 billion people. Big moment, right? Big significant moment. And as I, was, I, was, I saw the news that morning, I was watching the world population kind of click over, and, and to be 
I was really hoping to like watch it and see it get to 8 billion and take a screenshot quickly and try and catch it right at the 8 billion mark and I, I don't know, something happened and I totally missed it. But I looked later on and saw that we were well and truly past it. And it was one of those moments where I just started, found myself thinking, wow, what's, what's the point of all this? And, and probably more specifically to that moment, what do these 8 billion people who are alive right now Think of all, think of the point of all this is. What is actually all this about? In the West, where we live, the prevailing narrative is that of our world is that we don't really know what comes after death. It's probably nothing. And so the point of life is to make the most out of life. Live your life how you want to live it. You've only got one life. You're the one who's in charge of it. So do what pleases you. Make this about you. This is all about you. Live life to the full. Turn the volume up of your, on your experiences and on your, on your stuff to maximize your joy. The last thing you want is to get to the end of your life and feel like you've missed out on something, like you've missed an experience, like you've missed something important in your life. And so what you should be doing in your life is you should be cutting the cords of anything that's holding you back. And every advertisement that we see on the billboards or wherever we see them tells that story. Social media tells that story. We tell that story over and over again like we've got to make the most out of our lives. The Bible has a different narrative though. The Bible's narrative, the Bible's story is that actually this life is not all that there is, but actually there is a life to come. And the point of, of life has a lot to do with actually the eternal life to come after death. And actually, this life isn't about us. This life is actually about a God who is wonderful. This God made human beings in his own image to reflect his goodness to the whole world. And though sin entered our world and fractured our ability to be able to give glory to God, God sent his son to die for humanity, die for mankind, and to call them to follow him, to call mankind to follow him and be transformed back into the likeness of perfect hum- the perfect humanity of Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. You see, if we were to stick to the plans of our own lives, if we were to be the ones who would remain in charge and have the capacity to make our lives do what we want them to do, it's a lose-lose. When we're in control, when we're in the middle, when we are the point of it all, God is not glorified and we'll eventually find ourselves disappointed. Being in charge of our own lives, it might get us off to a good start. It might feel good initially but we will end up being disappointed. It's kind of like a hot, fresh cinnamon donut. When you're eating a hot, fresh cinnamon donut, there's nothing more wonderful in the world, right? Like You're like, I'm so glad that I'm eating this right now, that I'm the one eating this donut, nobody else is. It's fantastic. And then 10 seconds later, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, that's, I regret that. And it's like demise. It's bad. Being in charge of your own life is like a hot cinnamon donut. You might get off to a good start, it might feel really good, but it will end in our disappointment. We will end up being in, it will end up in our demise. If our hope 
to get meaning from something that we, is to get meaning from something that we can achieve or that we can possess or that we can experience in this life, we'll, we'll realistically only have a few options to choose from, and these options are fickle and will fade away. Anything on this side of eternity, if that's what gives us life, houses, looks, status, influence, money, career, whatever it is, we will end up being disappointed. But God's plans for us, God's intentions for us, they're a win-win. If we can submit ourselves to, to God's plan for us, to what God's intentions are for us, then he will be glorified and we will be surprisingly and supremely satisfied. If, if, if you want everlasting meaning in life, submit yourself to God's wonderful plans for your life. Let him save you and you'll have life to the full. But if we're seeking satisfaction or meaning from anything outside of him, then we'll only be able to choose from things like big screen TVs, fast cars, big houses, beautiful spouses, rock hard abs, and whatever it is that the world tells us, this is what you need to be happy. If we seek that, we'll be unsatisfied, but in Jesus, there will be only we'll, be, we'll find life. And the story of Esther has been retelling this narrative to us, that there is a God, and even though that God is invisible and we can't see him, he, he is more wonderful than anything that we have seen. And he has a plan to redeem sinners. And he's causing his plans to happen in real time. And he's involving us as he goes. And the story of Esther has been teaching us to live as people of faith, to live as people who, who hope in the things to come, in hoping to put their hope beyond what they can see into something that is invisible and yet guaranteed. So as we round out the story, as we round out this series in the book of Esther, um, covering these last few chapters, I've broken it up into three distinct scenes. The first scene uh, I'll call a great reversal. That's all of chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. The second scene is called, I'm going to call God's great deliverance, and it's the first half of chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 1 to 16. And then the third scene I'm going to call a great celebration, and that's just the remainder of the book, the second half of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. So, chapter, uh, chapter 8, first scene, a great reversal. Picking up where we left off, uh, Haman, the enemy of God's people, has been arrested. He's been taken away and hanged on the gallows. And if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we've been tracking the story. and We won't have time to, to cover it all. And so if, if you want to go home and read it, I encourage you. If you don't own a Bible, grab one of those ones from the back and take it home. We'd love for you to read that. Haman has been taken away to be executed. Then chapter 8, verse 1, it says, That same day... So the, the, the time gap between chapter 7 and chapter 8 is on the same day, so most likely still within the palace. King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai, her cousins. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. So Haman is out and Mordecai is in. And this is the beginning of a big reversal, of the great reversal of the fate of God's people. It began with these two men. 
couple of chapters ago, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate wearing sackcloth and ashes, and Haman was sitting next to the king enjoying the king's presence and the king's food and the king's wine. And then now, Haman is on the gallows, and Mordecai is being put in charge of Haman's estate. Mordecai is wearing the ring of authority that Haman once had. And this great reversal begins with these two men. They switch positions, but then that great reversal is going to spread out to all of God's people. You see, the edict that Haman had written to destroy God's people was still in play. Even though Haman was dead, it was the king's authority that had, that had caused this to take place. God's people are still, the edict to destroy God's people on a single day in the future is still going to happen. It still loomed. You see, Haman's edict gave not only permission, but responsibility to the, to the citizens throughout the 127 provinces of, of, of Persia to, uh, to kill and destroy and annihilate their Jewish neighbors and take their things. And that's crazy, right? Can we, like, if that happened in our country, like there's a group of people and we can all just go and destroy them and take their stuff, like that wouldn't fly these days. But that just tells us how different that is, how different this time was. And it was due to happen in, uh, from this point, nine months' time. On the 13th day of, of Adar, which is our February, God's people still needed to be saved. There's still work to be done. They still needed to be saved. And this reversal, Mordecai's replacement of Haman, is a sign that that work, that, that, that redemption is, is on its way. So verse 3. Then Esther again addressed the king. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. Notice how Esther's posture has changed. She's very emotional now. She's been quite composed. She's had herself together, and now she's fallen at his feet and weeping. <clears throat> the king extended the gold scepter toward Esther. He received her. So she got up and stood before the king. She said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come down on my, come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Now, one more time, I'll, I'll remind us of this. We've been saying this throughout the series. The, the people, the, the Jews who were living in Judah, some distance away, who had returned to, to Jerusalem... To, to rebuild the temple and, and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the, the temple that Jesus would one day walk through, these people who had returned, they were still under the jurisdiction of Persia. So this edict of Haman's is threatening them as well. King Ahasuerus, verse 7, King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So pay attention to the tricky position that they're in. 
A document that has been signed with the king's seal can't be revoked, which means Haman's edict, the king can't take that back. He can't say, I'm just going to nullify that law, I'm going to repeal that, that ruling. Because if he is to do that, then that's to admit the king was wrong about this, and we can't do that because the king was held in a, in a deified kind of status. The king cannot grant Esther's request to just simply revoke Haman's edict. It was written in his name. So what the king does is effectively write another blank check for Esther and Mordecai to do the same thing. Since the old edict cannot be revoked, they must write a new edict to cancel it out. Haman's orders can't be erased, so they must be neutralized. And then the way, if we continue reading through chapter 8, the way that the writer of Esther puts this demonstrates just how complete and thorough the reversal of the, reversal, reversal of the fate of the Jews really was. Uh, I've got it on the slide, we'll have it on the slide. If you, if you were to put Esther chapter 3 verses 12 to 15 next to Esther chapter 8 verses 9 to 15, you can see almost a line by line mirror image of what's going on here. You can see how just, I mean, I'm no math teacher or anything like that, but I know that the, equa- that the equation each side of the equal signs has to balance out, right? They are balancing each other out. They, it's being neutralized. One basically cancels the other out. So basically matching uh, Haman's activity of chapter 3, the king's scribes were summoned in verse 9. The edict was written according to what Mordecai wrote in, in chapter 3, uh, verses 12 was according to what Haman wrote. This is now according to what Mordecai wrote. And it was the same way, was translated into the script and language of each province. In verse 10, it was sealed with the same level of authority as Haman's. And then just like the first edict, it was sent out by couriers. Line by line it goes through. Then in verse 11, we get the official, the, the critical content of Mordecai's edict. It says, reading from verse 11, The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Again, if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you'll recognize those words from the first edict. To destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces, provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. It's just so thorough. Nothing is missed out. Now we're going to take a, a bit of a look at some of the tricky stuff to navigate there in just a moment, but the point is to show at this point the great reversal of the fate of God's people, the great undoing of evil. God was delivering his people. Evil was being condemned to the shadows and he wasn't leaving any of it out. And this points us towards the bright and stunning future for all God's people where God will one day undo evil in its entirety. Death one day will be a thing of the past. The curse of sin will be no more. There will be no relational strife. We will instead dwell together in perfect unity and harmony to glorify God in his presence together. 
the aches and pains of our joints and our muscles and our bones and all that, they will disappear. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have freedom and we'll use that freedom. We'll use the, the new flexibility in our hips and in our knees to be able to bow down and kneel before our King and worship Him forever. Tongues will no longer lie or hide the truth, but will instead be released and loosed and fully utilized to praise God in spirit and truth. Hands which one day, which once upon a time came down upon our enemies, will instead on that day be lifted up to glorify God, and all those who are in Jesus Christ will dwell in unceasing delight. There's this moment at the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I'm talking about the books, not the movies this time. I know quite a lot of movies, so I'm going to quote a book this time just so that, you know, you don't think I don't read books. But there's this moment uh, where Sam Gamgee, after the battle has been won, he's, he sees Gandalf for the first time in a long time. And he thought Gandalf was dead. He had seen Gandalf fall, and he had no idea that Gandalf has been alive this whole time. And his heart is filled with delight. And he says, Sam Gamgee says to Gandalf, are all the sad things coming untrue? And then Gandalf laughs with such a beautiful, clear, warm laughter that it fills Sam's heart with joy. We should read the book of Esther and see this great reversal of the fate of God's people and go, well, are all the sad things coming untrue? The answer is yes. They are. This is the nature of the future for God's people. God's redemption of sinners is going to deal properly and specifically and thoroughly with every single bit of pain that we experience and everything that has ever hurt us. God's redemption of sinners is going to redeem and clear us. We're going to be, we're going to be brought into heaven, brought into the new heavens and the new earth. And everything that has hurt us and destroyed us will be undone. And it began with the resurrection of Jesus and is guaranteed for all those who are found in him. For all those who trust in Jesus to make them right with God. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. And I'm glad that you, you could give us some of your time on a Sunday morning. But the kindest thing I could say to you right now is that that is not true of you. That is not true of you. None of it is guaranteed. That future is not guaranteed for you. In fact, the opposite is true. And if you reject Jesus, you reject your only chance of being spared from the wrath of God. But it can be true of you. Not by bringing your best to God. Not by being on your best behavior for God, but actually coming to God and all of your nonsense and all of our rubbish that we all come to God in and casting ourselves upon his mercy saying, I need you to save me from this, from where I've put myself. So as Mordecai's edict spread throughout the kingdom, the people responded with joy. Verse 17, in every province, in every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. So the, the reversal of the fate of God's people was so thorough, so complete, the 180 was so significant, the people who weren't Jews started putting up their hands and saying, I'm a Jew as well. Now, 
if we just put this into the context of the story, you didn't want to be one of God's people living in Persia at that time as you approached the 13th of Adar. Because that's when God's people, that's when the Jews were going to be killed. It's kind of like saying, oh, I wish I was a turkey on Thanksgiving Day. Like, it's, it's outrageous. And I'm sorry for the American reference. I don't know what the Australian... I mean, it's, it's like saying, I wish I was a prawn on Christmas Day. Like, it's, it's, like, it's kind of crazy that they did this. But this is how significant the reversal was. That people who weren't Jews were able to say, I'm, I'm actually... I, they professed to be one of God's people because of how significant the turnaround was. Verse, uh, then chapter 9, the scene changes. We get to God's great deliverance. And, and, and in that change from chapter 8 to chapter 9, we've jumped forward nine months now. And, and we, we rush straight ahead now to the 13th of Adar. And really, chapter 9 is just the outworking of what was talked about in chapter 8. If chapter 8 was the script, chapter 9 is the play. And what we're going to see here is the collision of these two edicts come together on this day, on the 13th day of Adar. We're going to see uh, Haman's edict that makes it lawful and, and it's, the, it's his civic duty to destroy, kill, annihilate uh, all the Jews who live near you and take their stuff. And then there's now Mordecai's edict, and they're both the king's edicts really, but there's Mordecai's one, written one, and that's saying, well, actually, the Jews are allowed to defend themselves now. So it's kind of madness. It's a little bit, I'm glad to not be living at that time when this is actually going on. So chapter 9, uh, the first two verses sum it up. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, on the day, sorry, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. So basically, Mordecai's edict worked. And then the next 13 verses or so flesh out what happened. In verses 3 to 4, uh, it says that the authorities actually helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had come upon them. His, his fame had spread, and they didn't want to get on his bad side. In verses 5 to 10, the details zoom, zoom in on the main city of Susa, and it tells us that 500 men, that the Jews killed 500 men that day, including Haman's 10 sons. And then in verse 10, we get this really interesting detail that the Jews did not plunder their enemies even though Mordecai's edict uh, permitted them to. In verses 11 to 15, after this had been reported to the king, Esther approaches the king and asks for an extension on the day. It seems as though she believed that more would still needed to be done. And it turns out this is actually true because they had to defend themselves and kill a further 300 men uh, on that second day, so on the, on the 14th day of Adar. And again, we're told on the second day, on the 14th day of Adar, the Jews did not plunder. They did not, it wasn't about greedy gain, it was about self-defense. Then verse 16 zooms out to show what happened outside of Susa, in the regional areas. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. So, this is crazy, right? Like 75,000 people killed on one day. And we might look at this and go, this is just bonkers. Like this, that's a confronting figure. 
Like, let's just be honest. And, and I like that the Bible doesn't pull punches. It doesn't, like, you know, smooth over these things to make it easier to read. This is in God's word. 75,000 people in one day. And it's hard to know how we should respond to that. This is one of those sections in Scripture that has us, particularly in the modern world, cringing a bit. And rightly so. We, we live in a society that has been largely f- framed and, and shaped by the, by the Christian worldview that each individual life matters. But let's just remember a few things that we've read. Firstly, the Jews were only allowed to attack other people in self-defense. If, if a Jewish person was to initiate any kind of aggression, that was illegal And a Persian citizen or someone from another ethnic group who was attacking a Jewish person, attacking one of God's people, would have been fully aware that it was perfectly legal for that person to defend themselves and actually kill them and take their stuff. So if you were killed by a Jew on the 13th of Adar in the kingdom of Persia, just going to say it, it's probably your fault. Like you didn't, like you could have avoided it by simply not attacking them. The second thing is that the Jews actually stopped short of fulfilling the decree in its entirety. They did defend themselves, but three times it says that they didn't plunder the goods. They didn't go in, they didn't, this wasn't about greedy gain, they didn't go and try and get what they could. They didn't take advantage of the situation, but chose only defense. And then the third thing And this is to do with the the part about Mordecai's edict about being permitting the Jews to kill women and children, which is hard to take. It says uh, that they were permitted to do that in self-defense. But actually, as we read through chapter 9 of what happened, nowhere it says they actually did that. And the body count refers only to men. Now, I know that that's an argument out of silence. It just saying that we well, didn't report that, and it's not particularly airtight. But considering the attention to detail that we've seen in, in the book of Esther, that this author has put into the book of Esther, the timing of events down to the minutes, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to dismiss that. But regardless of how confronting it is, the emphatic point is the comprehensive and exhaustive reversal of the Jews' fate. They were facing imminent, certain death. And God turned that around. They they had to live in fear that their lives were at risk. And then God turned that around. And this is such an incredible beacon and pointer, an arrow to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us was born under the curse of sin. Sin entered the world through one man, uh, Adam, and, and, because all, all, and sin spread to all people because all have sinned. Sin is serious. Our world doesn't want us to think that. But sin is serious. And sinners deserve the righteous judgment of God. But through Jesus Christ, there is deliverance from death. There is a reversal of the fate, of our fate, of our future. For those who trust in Jesus, there is a reversal of our future, and, and the reversal is complete and exhaustive and comprehensive. If you're a Christian, death is no longer the thing that we should fear anymore. We don't have to fear that. Um, 
when my, when my father passed away a couple of months ago, I was put in a really weird, unique position where the funeral director who came the next day to collect my father's body needed help to remove his body. And it was a, and he needed my help. I was the only one there to help out. And so I had to handle my dad's body. Um, cold skin, stiffness, it was rough. Very, very confronting. And uh, my dad was a Christian, so praise God for that. And because he's a Christian, I mean, it was such a confronting thing. And you, like, you see death, actually death. But death didn't win. It didn't win. Like, death waged an epic battle against my dad. But Jesus killed death by rising from the dead. And death is now a toothless foe. It could do its absolute worst, but it has nothing on the life-giving power of the resurrection of Jesus. It's got nothing. It's, it's all gums. It's no teeth. It's, it, can't do, it can't hurt us anymore. And like God's people in Persia, we no longer have to fear death. It does not pose a problem for us now. For a Christian... Death is not the end of life. For a Christian, death is the doorway to the actual life promised for us in glory. The, the poet George Herbert once wrote, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Or as the author Sam Albury puts it, you don't bury a Christian, you simply plant him. One day to arise in perfected physical glory. If you believe the prevailing narrative of this world, that there is nothing certain after death, there is nothing after death, then of course death is terrifying now. And if that's what you believe, then your only hope is to get what you can out of this life. And that's like trying to quench your thirst from muddy puddles. It's like trying to satisfy a deep, deep hunger with moldy breadcrumbs. Our appetite for life is simply too big for anything that this world can offer us. Our, our eternal appetite, our eternal hunger to be satisfied and filled can only be filled with an, by an eternal source, the eternal God of the universe. In a world where our greatest fear is that we might get to the end of our lives and feel like we didn't get our money's worth, the gospel stands as a stunning and clear and beautiful beacon to the world, saying that there is exponential joy to be found and expected and anticipated for all those who believe in Jesus. And we've got to live with that front and center in our minds. Like this is not a, a, an exhortation to remove ourselves from the world and, and protect ourselves in our nice houses and just kind of wait around for Jesus to come back before death to find us and, and, and whatever comes first. This is an exhortation to live day by day knowing full well what the future holds for us. We've got to let the reality of our future infiltrate our day-to-day -day lives. This is what it means to live a life of faith, to live by faith. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Faith is allowing your beliefs about God to invade today. 
Faith, is, faith in God is believing in him, that what he has promised for us for our future is far better than anything that we could do or earn or achieve or experience today, and allowing that truth to completely infiltrate every moment of the day. Put it this way, if you knew that tomorrow you're about to inherit more money than you could ever spend, it changes your spending habits today, doesn't it? And as Christians, the inheritance on the other side of eternity is guaranteed. Future glory, future delight, future perfection, future eternal exponential ecstasy is guaranteed. Do you know why? Because it's not based on what we've done for God. If it was based on what I've done for God, I could not expect it. I, could not, I couldn't guarantee it. I've stuffed up too many times, and I continue to stuff up. If, if, if heaven came down to what I could do for God and how good of a Christian I could be and how good of a pastor I could be, I'd be stuffed. We'd all be stuffed. But it's not based on that. It's not based on my shoddy record. It's based, the, 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 it's guaranteed because of Jesus' perfect Record. It's based on what he has done for God on our behalf. We are saved only because Jesus exchanged his perfect record for our shoddy one. And Jesus didn't just neutralize God's judgment against sinners. He made us God's children. To those who receive Jesus, he gave them the right to be the children of God. That's John 1.12. I've been meditating on that verse for a few months now. I keep quoting it here on my sermons. God, Jesus gave us the right to be the children of God. If that doesn't change the gravity in your soul, I don't know what else will. Like just consider what this last week has held. Just you, not what's been done by, to you, but by you. And consider that God, fully aware of that, has given us the right to be his children. To be co-heirs with Jesus. Stick that in your souls. And, and that's the thing. The eternal rest in the presence of God is our inheritance. And if there's one action to be taken from today, it's stick that in your heart and let it make you bulletproof. Get the gospel into your heart and make, let that make you Bulletproof. So how do we do that? Well, it's a good question and it's answered in our text. The final scene is of this great celebration. On the day after their scheduled destruction, the Jews celebrated and rested. For the regional areas, that was on the 14th day of Adar, so then the next day. Uh, for the city of Susa, that was on the 15th day, uh, because of the extra day that they, they needed. And this was the institution of the celebration of Purim. Uh, this, is, uh, this whole story of Esther could, could be briefly summarized by, uh, and this is what happens actually if you're, if you're a Jew and you're celebrating Purim, what would happen is the children would sit around and say, why are we doing this? And then one of the adults would tell the story of Esther. So it's kind of like, you know, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we do this? This is, the story of Esther answers that question. This was the institution of the celebration of Purim, where instead of a day of grief, the day after the day of the 13th day of Adar, that was meant to be, that was probably going to be, 
a day of grief and of, of turmoil and struggle and really the end of God's people. But instead, it became a day of rest, of feasting, of rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. And that is still celebrated today. Verse 22 sums it up. This was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. That's cool, right? They're not, not, not morning afternoon, like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. They're morning into a holiday. So good. And under the leadership of Mordecai, Purim became an established day to celebrate each year. Reading from verse 26, Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. What strikes me as important here is that they didn't leave it up to chance. They didn't go, well, that was a nice day. <laughs> Felt much better today. I wouldn't know what I was expecting. Let's try and remember that next year. Yeah, sweet, no worries, that's fine. Like, have you ever tried to catch up with someone and said, hey, let's catch up sometime, and then you run into them three months later, and you say, hey, yeah, we haven't caught up yet. We should, we should do it. And then three months pass, and you haven't done it yet, and you keep leaving up to chance. I, I'm a shocker at this. I ran into a buddy of mine at Bunnings a few months ago. Um, he's a pastor, another pastor here in, in Cloundra. And I said, hey, we should, we should catch up. And he's like, yeah, we should, we should. So I messaged him on Facebook Messenger. And you know on Facebook Messenger when you message someone and then it shows you the last message? The last message was from 12 months ago and it was almost verbatim, word for word, what I said in the next message. We should catch up sometime. I was like, wow, it's been 12 months. That's a shocker. And so we arranged to catch up. And I, I bailed on him. I had to cancel last minute. But I'll message him this afternoon and we'll try and catch up. But it says here that the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate. Now, we, I'm not sure if it's Aussie culture or whatever it is, we don't like the idea of binding ourselves to some kind of commitment. Like we leave it to the very last minute to RSVP to something, like if, if you're... If you, if you've planned a wedding in the last, I don't know, 15 years, you know what this is like. People don't RSVP. Oh, we're planning anything. People don't RSVP until the very last minute. You've got to chase them for that stuff. We'd rather wait and see if there's anything else going on. It sounds almost silly, though, that they had to bind themselves to a commitment to celebrate and feast and rejoice. Like, it's not like they were binding themselves to a chore. They were binding themselves to a party. But the nature of humanity is that we are so prone to forget these things. We are so prone to, to just forget that actually God's given us plenty of reasons to celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ. But if we leave it to chance, if we think to ourselves, oh, I'll just get around to it, like I know the grace of God is good, but I'll, I'll get to it at some point, then it'll never happen. That's why God's people today, just like God's people back then, ought to bind themselves in a commitment to celebrating the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to stick the gospel in your heart and let your heart marinate that in, in that until you become bulletproof. 
What if we, as a church, became experts in the gospel? Not because we have brilliant theological minds, but because we get the gospel into our hearts again and again and again and again. Over and over, sticking the good news of Jesus into our hearts, intentionally calendarizing it, scheduling it in, making sure that it doesn't just get left to chance. What if instead of waiting until we felt like it, which it probably will never happen, we instead scheduled in regular times to celebrate God's grace? And we have plenty of times to be able to do that. One such time is what we're doing right now the gathering of the church. Like what if church on Sundays wasn't just ticking a box, but was like a weekly Purim festival, a weekly moment that we commit ourselves to celebrating God's grace? What if we saw Sundays not as something that you've got to do, that you should do if you've got nothing else on, but instead as a scheduled moment in your life to celebrate God's grace? A moment with other brothers and sisters to welcome one another and marvel at God's grace together. A moment that you set aside to go, I'm going to get with God's people and I'm, we're, going to, we're going to pray and we're going, to, we're going to sing loudly. A moment to hear God's word and submit ourselves to his word. A moment to be nourished by Jesus as we take communion, remembering his body and blood. A moment uh, to find out how a brother or sister is doing at work or with the family and praying for them. And what if we just, just made the intentional effort, not just left, leaving up to chance, but made the intentional effort of celebrating God's grace, of, of putting it in our diaries, not just of Sundays, but of things like prayer meetings or life groups. Things like, like I've had this thought for the, since last year. I used to be the kind of person who we do nothing about Christmas until the 1st of December. No Christmas carols, no lights or anything. Not because I don't like Christmas, but because I love it so much and I kind of want to save it for then. And I've repented and I now, we've started putting up our Christmas lights on Friday and I love Christmas carols and I love all of that. And here's the thing, when you get to the shops in September, you start to see the Christmas decorations. And I used to be one of those people who'd be like, oh, typical shops, you know, bringing it earlier each year. But what if instead of doing that, we went, oh, look, Kmart's celebrating the incarnation in September. I'm not going to complain about that. I'm going to let the tinsel remind me that God, is actually, God actually came to earth 2,000 years ago to save my soul. What if we did that when we see the Christmas lights? What if we, we, we actually let this scheduled thing of Christmas be actually what it's meant to be. And yes, let the world remind us of that, but go, whoa, God's grace and favor to us in sending his son. And the same thing for Easter. And the same thing with, with daily devotional time, just setting aside a time, you know, the, 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 pre, the, the, the morning coffee and the word time to celebrate God's grace. What if we became experts in the gospel? Not because... We knew the ins and outs of all the theological nuances of it, but rather just because we rehearsed it into our hearts, set it into our hearts every single day. God loves me. Not because I'm particularly lovable, but despite my unloveliness, God loves me and sent his son to die for me and has made me one of his children, and is making me into the image of Jesus, and has promised me the most spectacular future that I could ever imagine, and beyond that, 
and letting that reality infiltrate every thought, every action, every single thing that we do? What if we became experts in God's grace simply by receiving it again and again, scheduling it, binding ourselves to a commitment to celebrate the goodness and the favor and the grace of God? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 